Thank you, Liz. And uh, stay there in Romans chapter 9, friends. Uh, I wonder if one of the impacts of living in a year that we're living in is the possibility of what Paul warns the Galatians against when he says, do not grow weary in doing good. Uh, I wonder if growing weary in doing good is something that we're in danger of in a communication-saturated world where every cause is placed before our eyes and our minds and our screens 24 hours a day. But when you're living through a bunch of different cultural and social and political issues like we are right now, uh, that can impact us all personally in different ways and at different times. Uh, I wonder if we can feel a bit of cause fatigue. So many things going on, so many opportunities to give, to serve, to work for change. Do we feel a bit fatigued by, by it all, a bit weary in doing good? That might be the case. I just want to acknowledge this morning in a short moment that this week begins Donate for Life Week. And uh, organ donation, I think, is a lovely way for us to care for our neighbours, even in our death. And I wonder if you would take a moment to think about that for yourself today. Just a week before we went into lockdown as a church, we marked the one-year anniversary since our dear sister Jessica King died. Uh, So Donate Life Week is particularly significant for our brother Steve, who's here today. Uh, Jack's chronic illness was a significant reason, is a significant reason why Steve is so committed and passionate about things like technology that enables our live stream and why he works full-time on accessibility issues. because those sorts of things provide an ongoing way for people with chronic illness uh, who are always in isolation, who always live through what some of us, or all of us, have only experienced in recent times because of a global pandemic. And so take a moment to think about that today, donate life. Uh, But in a world where cause fatigue exists because there's a never-ending list of issues and a never-ending list of uh, fractures and sicknesses and inequalities and struggles in our world, in a world where it's all too easy to grow weary in doing good, uh, we were reminded last week from Romans chapter 8 that that's the reality of a world that is groaning under the weight of sin and death. Our bodies groan, our world groans, longing uh, for the redemption that comes in the Lord Jesus. Longing for the beauty and the goodness and the perfection of God's new creation. Uh, And in that context, Romans chapter 9 reminds us that standing above every cause and behind every need is the only hope for life and the only hope in death That is, a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, our only Saviour King, who died for the sin of the world and the one in whom God is reconciling all things. Uh, Romans 8 finished on such a triumphant and secure note, didn't it? Uh, That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ. Christ Jesus, the greatest threats in the world to life and health and safety, cannot destabilise the Christian's hope 
and the eternal life that Jesus gives. And the issue doesn't change as we arrive in chapter 9 today. That kind of assurance and security, I think, is still on view, but the tone has certainly shifted. It's like we all arrive together at the mountaintop experience of Romans chapter 8. The music would have hit a crescendo as we reached uh, those lofty heights of those verses. Uh, And our joy had been captured, our vision had been expanded. As we're breathing in the air together, it feels like uh, there are some questions in that mountaintop air that we still need to acknowledge, that we still need to work through together. Because imagine Jesus is the kind of mountaintop experience. He is the vision that we're soaking in, the crisp, life-giving air and the beauty inexhaustible, inexhaustible, the only hope in life and death. But as we take in that beautiful vision, we look around us and realise that actually some of the people who are with us on the journey are walking away. Some of them who have seen Jesus have said, no, he's not that great. Some of them are looking at a completely different mountain who think they're seeing the beautiful vision that we've seen at the top of Romans chapter 8, but they're really looking in the completely the opposite direction. And so as we stand there and you kind of consider the joy and the triumph and the security of chapter 8, it can feel like as we see people with their eyes closed and people walking away and people saying, it's not that impressive, you can start to ask the question, well, is my security in Jesus really that stable after all? Or is there a little bit of wobbliness in our footing? What do we make of those who seem to be Christian but walk away? Those who have grown up in the church but won't follow Jesus? And more particularly for Paul and for the Roman Christians, what do they do with the fact that so many of the Jews who inherited God's promises and have so much heritage, who had so many reasons to see Jesus as the long-awaited Saviour King, what do we do with the fact that they won't respond with repentance and faith. And does that mean that security in Christ isn't quite that secure after all? What does it do to God's promises? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for them? And what are we meant to do about it? Well, in Romans chapter 9... The tone moves from that joy and triumph and security at the end of chapter 8 to a note of sorrow and anguish. And as we kind of travel through chapter 9 together, and hopefully Mark doesn't get electrocuted over at the wall, um, as we're moving through chapter 9 and we're going to be looking at the questions that Paul asked, these are the three things that I want us to take. This is where I want us to land. Continuing with the joy and the triumph and the security, we want to add to that from chapter 8. We want to add deep anguish. We want to add deep anguish because there's nothing as important as knowing Jesus. We want to add humble trust because it's always about God's sovereign choice. And we want to add expectant thankfulness 
because God's mercy is enormous. Deep anguish, because there's nothing as important as knowing Jesus. Humble trust, because it's always God's sovereign choice. And expectant thankfulness, because God's mercy is big. Deep anguish, the first thing is uh, deep anguish, because there's nothing as important as knowing Jesus, which is what Paul is talking about in those first few verses. He says, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Uh, Paul is full of anguish because he knows that uh, there is nothing as important as knowing Jesus. And these, his own countrymen, who have inherited God's promises, who saw God's glory revealed at Mount Sinai, who were called God's firstborn son. Right? They were given God's promises, God's covenants. They were given the law and the temple worship. All these things that pointed to Jesus. They went through the sacrificial system. They knew that forgiveness was only possible through the means that God provides, through the shedding of blood. They, they had all these signposts that were meant to drive them to Jesus and yet so many of them, it seems, says Paul, have rejected that and turned away. And so he says, I'm filled with anguish. He's not filled with resentment He doesn't just yell at them, trying to guilt them into coming back. He doesn't dismiss them, oh well, you get what you deserve. No, he knows that there is nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus. There's nothing as important as knowing Jesus. And so as he looks at the lost of his own people, those who will not come and trust Jesus as Saviour and King, he's filled with anguish and sorrow. And I wonder if we would feel the same. Maybe some of us are feeling that kind of anguish today for a loved one who doesn't yet know Jesus. For a sibling who was raised in the church like, like us but has walked away. Or for those around us who don't yet know Jesus, are we filled with enough anguish and sorrow to drive us to our knees, to plead with God, to pour out his mercy, to keep on our lips, on our diaries and in our agenda the fact that there is nothing more important than people coming to know the Lord Jesus. As we engage with all the other causes in the world, knowing that certain hope and real life is only going to be found in knowing Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And what does it mean, says Paul, that these, his own countrymen, have walked away? Does that mean that God's promises have failed? Verse 6, is God actually unreliable? What went wrong? Paul goes on to say no. He says, It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. 
What he wants to make clear is that it has always been God's choice and you've always been saved by trusting in God's promises according to his divine election, his sovereign choice rather than your physical descendants, right? It has always been God's choice. And Paul traces us through all of this great history of the people of Israel to show that the way that God has always been working by his sovereign choice to save a people for himself. He talks about Isaac and Ishmael, the half-brothers, and says that God chose Isaac. But it even gets more particular than that because God chose between Jacob and Esau, the twins. And he wants to say that it has always been about God's promises. For this is how the promise was stated, verse 9. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, we struggle with that kind of language, don't we? That God would say that he hates one of the twins and loves the other. And I think there's some stark language going on to make the point that the distinction that God makes between those two. But the focus is not on on God hating and rejecting Esau. The focus is on the fact that God loved and chose Jacob. That it was before they had done anything good or bad. It's not based on their merit. It's not based on their personalities. It's not based on anything that they could achieve or accomplish. But it's because of, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. It's not simply belonging to Abraham's family that makes you an heir of God's promise. but it's about God's sovereign choice of those who would save. Now, we affirm with the Bible that God loves the whole world and he loves all who bear his image, but that his saving, electing, his choosing love is directed to those whom he chooses not based on their ethnic race, not based on their human achievement, but based solely on his grace alone, his undeserved kindness. And so Paul's point, as he watches some of his own countrymen walk away, his point is that that has always been the way it is, that not all Israel have ever been Israel. That within the covenant community of God's people, there are those who are the recipients of God's electing, choosing love. And that all throughout God's promises, he has been including in that chosen group of those who who are the recipients of his choosing, electing love, there there are undeserving recipients. There are people like the Rahabs and the Ruths who are included into God's people without any ethnic background to depend upon. What they depend upon is solely God's grace alone. And so you look all the way back through God's 
dealings with his people, Paul says. And you see that as God chose Cain and not Abel, as he chose Isaac and not Ishmael, as he chose Jacob and not Esau, as he chose Israel and not Canaan, as he chose David and not Saul, as he chose Peter and not Judas. So God chose you and not someone else. And while it might be an easy teaching to get our heads around, it's not an easy teaching to accept, is it? It's difficult. But it's so important that we maintain that salvation is by God's free choice alone. Because if it's not, then at any point it reverts back to us and we become the authors of our own salvation. If it's based on what we can do, if it's based on our pedigree or our uh, race or our ethnicity, who can run faster on the performance treadmill or who can climb higher on the achievement ladder or who can shout louder in the virtue contest or who can look shinier in the comparison game. As one writer has said, this teaching is based on the nature of God who is sovereign and merciful. It's based on the nature of people who are rebellious and dead in our sin. It's based on the character of salvation, which is always a free gift. And so if that's the truth, then when it comes to our relationship with God, that should lead us to absolutely humble trust, knowing it's not based on anything that we can do, but it's based on God's purposes of election. It doesn't depend, verse 16, on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. But isn't that unfair? that God would choose some and not others. Have a look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. The whole point of this is that it's salvation by grace and not by race and that nobody deserves to be chosen by God. It's not like we all start from a position of neutrality and God says, I'm going to send you that way and I'm going to send you that way. We all start from a position of sinfulness and rebellion against God. We all start from the the starting point of being deserving of his judgment and his condemnation. And the whole point of grace is that not because of anything that we have done, but sheerly because of his mercy, God reaches in and says, I'll have mercy on those for whom I have mercy. It's like that picture, uh, have you ever seen those TV shows where um, 
a family suffering from chronic illness is given, you know, a new house or an amazing overseas holiday or, or something like that. And you think, surely there are so many families going through the similar circumstances. Isn't it unfair that this one family is given this amazing gift? And so what do you do? You withhold the gift from one family because there's not enough to go around? God says, no, I will have mercy on whoever I choose. Because we're not starting from a position of neutrality, but we're starting from a position where all of us deserve God's judgment. All of us have fallen short of his glory. And God in his sovereign wisdom and choice only by his grace, reaches in to show mercy to those he chooses. But how is it just? How is it fair? Esau never stood a chance. How can he be accountable for the decision that he makes? That's the question of verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make known the riches of his glory known make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he pre- prepared in advance for glory even us whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles Paul wants to say that in the midst of all this that God is working out his single purpose of mercy and that he holds us accountable for our decisions, even within his divine sovereignty. That he's doing this as he holds back his judgment, allowing plenty of time for people to see the consequence of their own decision to to reject him and to walk away. Holding back his divine judgment in order that people would have time to repent. His long-suffering patience in order that so many from around the world, from every tribe and nation and language, would turn back to him and live. But does it mean that God is unjust? No, it's not as if he had looked into the future and said, I can see who's going to respond to me, and then he chooses those people. The truth we're talking about here is that God chose them before the foundation of the world, before he created anything before anyone's done anything good or or bad. And what this doesn't mean either is that we are puppets on a string, that we're robots without any decision-making capability. Our decisions and our choices are real. That's how God's sovereignty is played out in this world. It's not either you choose or God's in control, it's that we choose and God is in control. Think about this for a moment. When, I, when we go on a family holiday, uh, we try to make it a, a, a habit to pray in the car that we would get to our destination safely. And as we pray and then drive, 
When we arrive safely, who, do, who is responsible for getting us there? My amazing driving or God's sovereign care? Well, I give thanks to God for his sovereign care and I also take care in how I drive. Or an example from the Bible, when Peter in Acts chapter 2 says to the Jewish leaders, he said, Jesus was handed over to you according to God's plan and foreknowledge and you killed him. According to God's sovereign plan and foreknowledge, Jesus was handed over to the leaders of Israel and they are responsible for their decision to put him to death. The fact that we have and possess true freedom in our decision-making does not mean that we are independent from God's sovereign will. And as Paul makes the point here, we are always the creature and God is always the creator. Paul makes the final point as he quotes from Hosea and from Isaiah that this is the way God has always worked and it should lead us to expectant thankfulness because God's mercy is so much bigger than we can ever imagine. He gives the example from, from Hosea where the northern kingdom of Israel who had been cut off from God's people, who had been sent into exile, who had no claim to belong to him, God says, I will call you my people and I'll call you my loved one and I'll bring you back to belong to me. So often in the Bible when God's sovereign election is on view, the response of God's people is not meant to be to puzzle it out, be confused and perplexed and it's not simply to relax and say we don't need to worry about it. The Bible always responds to God's, the teaching of God's sovereign election and choice by calling people to turn to Christ, to rely upon God's grace, to accept the offer of forgiveness that comes in the Lord Jesus. And so what do we do with the deep anguish? Because there's nothing more important than knowing Jesus. We keep proclaiming him. But we do so with humble trust, knowing that the results of our proclamation of the gospel lie in God's sovereign hands. Which gives us freedom, doesn't it? to leave the results up to him, to leave the, the eternal future of people up to him. That doesn't rest on our shoulders, it rests on his. And it should lead us to expectant thankfulness, knowing that God's mercy has always been more expansive than we can ever imagine, calling the unexpected people to belong to his kingdom. And we continue to pray that he would pour out his grace. That he would continue to bring people from every tribe and nation and language and family to a saving knowledge of Jesus, who is our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we thank you that you are the God who's in control of all things. That you are sovereign and you are good. We pray that as we wrestle with hard truths like the teaching of your sovereign choice of some that you would have mercy on and others that you haven't. That you would help us to trust you with it, knowing that you are infinitely wise, you are infinitely good, and that your mercy is wider and deeper than we can ever imagine. Give us anguish for the lost, we pray. Give us humble trust in your sovereign choices and give us an expectant thankfulness for your amazing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.